the premise of the study was that if we really wanted to learn about how to block metastasis, we really had to do it in a living system. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Over 380,000 deaths are predicted to occur this year in the United States and Canada due to cancers. And more than 1 million Americans, as well as over 100,000 Canadians, are estimated to be diagnosed with some form of cancer in 2018. Today, in episode 33 of Parsing Science, we're joined by John Lewis from the University of Alberta in Edmonton. He'll talk with us about his research into the application of molecular tools to almost completely block the spread of any form of cancer in living cells. Here's John Lewis. So hi there. Uh, My name is John Lewis. I am an associate professor at the University of Alberta in the Department of Oncology, and I hold uh, the chair, uh, Frank and Carla Sajanki Chair in Prostate Cancer Research, supported by the Alberta Cancer Foundation. So I grew up in uh, in a a small town called Owen Sound, about 20,000 people. And actually, I thought I, I might become an engineer, so very, very interested in new technologies and tools and became very interested early on in computer programming and things like that. So I started my education uh, at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada, and, uh, and studied genetics. But at the time, I, I, I wasn't sure what career I wanted to enter in, so I actually took a job, believe it or not, as an income tax consultant. And, uh, and worked for four years doing income tax and corporate income tax and audits and all that. So learned a lot about business. And, and I think that's, that's informed me a lot in, in sort of what I'm doing now. But realized that I didn't want a career in bookkeeping. So I moved out west and started my PhD in the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology at the University of Victoria. And the whole time I was doing my PhD, I was sort of searching for, you know, how was I going to use this this amazing knowledge? Rather unfortunately, my fiance at the time, uh, her father came down with, uh, with kidney cancer that had metastasized to his liver. And so it was, you know, it was at a fairly late stage. And, you know, while I was doing these amazing techniques in the laboratory, you know, we, we had sort of state-of-the-art computers and, and these amazing analytical techniques, you know, the clinical trials that were offered to him at this sort of late stage were, were pretty shocking to me. So at the time, there was a clinical trial for, believe it or not, thalidomide. And of course, it didn't have much activity. The other one, it was a clinical trial in interleukin-2 which can create some really, really horrible side effects and, and also didn't have any effect on his cancer. So, so at the time, I was motivated sort of by the low technology of the, of the clinic to, to try to apply some of the stuff I'd learned in my PhD toward cancer. And so pretty much ever since then, I've been working on cancer. As John explains, cancer is not one disease, but rather a collection of diseases that are deeply complex and far from fully understood. We began our conversation by asking him how it is that cancers can develop and, through metastasis, spread. So, of course, cancer can be many diseases, but many cancers uh, start out just as cells in the body that are doing their normal jobs, and they may acquire a mutation that causes them to begin to divide out of control. So in many tissues, prostate's a good example. I study prostate cancer now you'll have tissues in your prostate that, that start to divide out of control. And actually at this point, they're not really that dangerous. So, I mean, they just create a lump and your immune system may clear out some of it and, and your body can usually deal with it. But the issue is, is that every time a cell divides, it has to 
you know, faithfully replicate all its DNA information. And every time you replicate it, there's a chance you can have an additional mistake. So the more times you divide a cell, you sort of have this accumulating chance of, of having more mistakes, more mutations. And some of these mutations will cause the cells to do other dangerous things like break down the tissue around them and and, and maybe start moving out of the tissue. And, and that's when they become very dangerous. So, you know, all the things a cancer cell does are things that cell, cells have the intrinsic programming to achieve, right? And, and really in your biology of your body, we have the challenge that we have this sort of single a template of code in our DNA that has to do, you know, tons of different things, right? So it has to create an epithelial cell that sits in a tissue that provides structure and sort of sits around and may do very little. And then you have immune cells that are highly plastic. They're changing, they're moving around, they're adapting to their situations. And so all of the genes that make an immune cell be able to transit the entire body and invade different tissues, all those genes are in an epithelial cell that's sort of sitting around creating structural integrity for a tissue. So these mutations can basically change the programming of an epithelial cell, you know, and potentially hijack some of the programming of an immune cell so that they're, they basically have properties of both. And because these cells are dividing, some of them may die and some of them may survive and persist. That's an evolutionary process that, you know, basically selects for cells that can survive and get out of this environment. So cells that are that are dividing out of control can have years and years of selection, right? So they may divide for 10 years without being an issue. And then one day they'll accumulate a mutation that allows them to, to say, break down the, the membrane, the basement membrane that's surrounding that tissue. And then suddenly they, they can escape. John and his team discovered 11 genes that are widely involved in the metastasis of cancer cells, but which are also not unique to any one type of cancer. So Ryan and I were curious how this approach built on previous advances in cancer research. The way cancer develops and is diagnosed, typically it's, it's either diagnosed as metastatic already or not metastatic. So before we got involved, a guy named Peter Brooks in the lab of uh, James Quigley in 1993 actually did a really cool experiment. He had the same idea that we had later. You know, what makes a cell that is able to successfully get out of a tumor and go somewhere else in the body and survive different from a cell that's, that's actually a cancer but, but sort of sits still and isn't deadly? So he did this really neat experiment in mice where he was able to basically take a cell that could create tumors every time in a mouse. So you put a few of these cells in the mice and it would make a tumor every time. Uh, and then he created a clone of that tumor that would make a tumor every time, but also spread in every experiment. So when he actually immunized mice against the non-metastatic tumor, and he was able to, to basically tolerate that mouse to that tumor. So the mouse is producing antibodies against it to try to get rid of it. So he was able to tolerate the mouse against that non-metastatic tumor. And then he went and challenged the mouse again with the metastatic tumor. So now the mice, mouse is, is seeing the sort of the same tumor cells, but is creating antibodies only against those unique features that are different from the original cancer cell. So we came on the scene when we'd identified one particular antibody that recognizes a, a protein called tetraspanin CD151. It's, it's not a particularly remarkable protein, except that when you give this antibody to a mouse with metastatic cancer, it completely blocked the spread of that cancer. So one of the antibodies on the screen recognized a unique protein that was only on metastatic cells, this tetraspanin CD151. And when you put that antibody in a, in a mouse that had a metastatic tumor, the spread was completely blocked. 
And so we did an initial experiment doing imaging on these tumors in this model system where we realized that the antibody, it wasn't actually killing the cells uh, and it wasn't even preventing them from dividing or, or you know, multiplying. Uh, but it w what it was doing a great job of is uh, actually just creating uh, stickiness between the cells. So increasing the adhesive properties of the cells, which prevented them from escaping and actually completely shut down metastasis. John likens this approach of blocking the spread of cancers by increasing their adhesiveness to it being sort of a tumor glue. He and his team, however, ran into some challenges inhibiting the CD151 gene, as he describes next. So we got excited about that. We published a nice paper about that. And we thought about, great, we have a target now, the CD151. We have an antibody that recognizes the target. Now maybe we can actually take a drug and, and bring it to clinic and, you know, the first drug to block metastasis. So unfortunately, we know CD151 is on the tumor cells. But what we learned sort of pretty quickly after that was there's a lot of CD151 in other cells. So it's on the cells that line your blood vessels, the endothelial cells. It's on, and this is important, platelets. So the coagulating cells that, that circulate around your bloodstream. And when you put the antibody with platelets, it cross-links them and cr creates this sort of catastrophic coagulation event. So as a potential clinical drug for cancer, it was pretty much a no-go from the beginning. So, so at the time we thought, oh geez, so what are we gonna do? Maybe we can engineer the antibodies sort of get around this, the platelet, make it specific for tumor cells over platelets. And we didn't really have any great ideas. What we did think of though, and this, this happened all the way back in 2006, we thought that, okay, so when we image these cells, when the antibody's there, these cells look completely different, right? So instead of sort of reaching out and invading into all the surrounding tissues, it's quite remarkable the way they do that. Uh, when the antibody's there, they sort of form a really tight, compact ball. And just by looking at it, it's really obvious the difference between the two. So we thought at that time, if we had used a method to screen the entire genome, so every gene in the genome, to look for other genes when we targeted them that would create the same sort of phenotype, the same compactness of the cells, maybe we could identify other therapeutic targets or other drug targets that could produce the same effect uh, as what we saw with this antibody. And so that's sort of the project that was conceived at that time that we, we brought forward and, and it took us about 12 years to, to realize the potential of it. Before testing these therapeutic targets' ability to block cancers in lab mice, John and his team first carried out their experiments on a much faster-growing animal model, fertilized chicken eggs whose shells had been removed in order to access the embryo during the three weeks in which they develop. Ryan and I wondered where these eggs come from, as well as how researchers in John's lab learned to de-shell the eggs without disturbing the fragile membranes inside. Currently, so we're fortunate now, we actually have a large agricultural research faculty and they, they have a whole um, cohort of, of chickens and produce these fertilized eggs on a regular basis. So, so we have a constant supply of fertilized eggs these days. And the shells for us are dispensable. So, so we actually use what we call an ex ovo version of the chicken embryo. So to put it in context, when an egg is fertilized, it takes about 21 days for the embryo to develop inside the egg and then for the chicken to hatch. And we basically work in that three-week window to do our cancer metastasis experiments. So we take the freshly fertilized eggs. We have to put them in an, sort of an agricultural incubator that sort of rocks them back and forth, similar to what the, you know, the mother hen would do, moving the eggs constantly. And after four days, though, they can survive outside the shell. So actually, every single new trainee that comes into my lab, we sit them down with 120 fertilized eggs, a lab coat, protective goggles, and a Dremel tool with a cutting wheel. And we say, look, 
you have to work through these 120 eggs and uh, and try to get them as, as perfect as possible. And so most most trainees at this point have pretty good hands and they're they're nervous and they want to do a, a good job. So so maybe out of the first 10, they might explode maybe two or three. But by the time they get to 10, they've they've usually got the hang of it. And after that, you know, maybe out of 120 eggs, they get 90 or 100. But every once in a while, and we had one trainee in particular who was very excited about doing research, wanted to do a, a research on cancer. He was, he was actually a high school student who was doing a project in the lab. And, and he and his partner, I sat them down with 120 eggs and gave them 60 each and, and asked them to use the Dremel tool to open them up. And his partner went through and, and did the typical thing, maybe broke one or two and got through the eggs. And he sat down and the very first egg, before it even touched the Dremel tool, he exploded it in his hands. <laughs> it just went everywhere and all over all over his goggles. And then the next one, he, you know, he I guess he jolted and the Dremel tool went right through the egg. And and anyway, so we get to about 10 eggs and every single egg had exploded. And we thought, you know, do we stop him or do we let him keep going? And uh, yeah, he didn't get a single one. So <laughs> we stopped him at about 25 and uh, we said, okay, that's good. Uh, you, you tried your hardest. Just never, ever touch an egg again. <laughs> Doug and I were interested in learning how John and his team maintain the deshelled chicken embryos as they mature, as well as what parts of the chicken embryo they test their anti-metastasis therapies on. We crack these uh, so four-day-old chicken embryos into a dish, and what they need to survive in that environment is uh, humidity, so over 85% humidity, and they're happy, and so their their membranes don't dry out, and about 37, 38 degrees Celsius, which is about body temperature. And if you keep them under these circumstances, they'll continue to develop and grow just like they would inside the shell, all the way to the point where they would hatch. And so the membrane we're interested in is not the one that you see on sort of on the, when you're peeling a hard boiled egg, for instance, and you have to peel off that membrane. In a fertilized egg, they create what's called a chorioallantoic membrane. And this is a membrane that you'll never see in an egg that you get from a store, but in a fertilized egg, it basically forms on the inside surface of the shell. It's full of blood vessels and it's basically like the placenta or the lung. It's, it's, it's uh, taking in oxygen and that's feeding the embryo. And so now you crack the egg into the dish. And, and so this chorioallantoic membrane that normally forms on the inside surface of the shell now forms on the top surface of this embryo. So you can imagine we have maybe a three-inch square dish. And as this embryo develops, it's now getting about 10 days. The chorioallantoic membrane spreads out of the entire top surface of this embryo. So just to describe it, it's a, it's a really almost completely transparent membrane. It's full of blood vessels. So it's got a network of blood vessels. It's, uh, it's got a direct connection to the heart. So it's pumping blood through it constantly. And it's really thin. So it's you know, a fragment of a millimeter thin, uh, you know, a fraction of an inch thin and transparent. And what's nice about the model at this point before it becomes a chicken is that it's, it's immunocompromised. So its immune system hasn't fully developed yet. It doesn't have antibody producing cells. It doesn't have, you know, these killer T cells. And so what that means is that we can, we can inject human tumor cells into this membrane and they'll grow and form tumors and, and spread and metastasize just like they would in a human. After injection, many of these cells make their way throughout the embryo, then back to the chorioallantoic membrane. We asked John to describe this process in more detail, as well as how they go about tracking the development of the cancer cells that they injected into the chicken embryos. 
Between day 10 and day 12, the, the scoralantoic membrane has sort of fully covered the top surface. It's transparent. It's very thin. And so we come in with a microinjection needle. And for the purpose of, of, of these kinds of experiments, we can inject single cells into a vein in this membrane. And typically, we'll inject 20 to 25,000 cells at a time. And when you do that, they basically go to the, the venous blood vessels, which go straight into the heart. And all of those 25,000 cells get pumped through the entire body and back into the choreoantoic membrane of the, this chicken embryo. And each one of these individual cells, once they get back into the capillaries of this membrane, they'll get stuck, basically. So the cancer cells are quite large compared to some other cells and, and a lot of the chicken cells. So they'll get stuck in these really tiny capillaries that sort of are all over this membrane uh, as individual cells. And then over about an 8 to 12-hour period after that, they'll sort of start moving around and then they'll do what we call extravasation. So they'll extravasate out of the blood vessels and into the surrounding tissue. So they, they escape the blood vessels. And then, then you have basically, if you look at it 12 hours after you inject these cells, and in this case, we're, we're actually videotaping these using a fluorescent microscope. So it's like a Christmas tree. And they're labeled with a green fluorescent protein so we can see them. And so under the right wavelength of light, the chicken embryo lights up with all these green spots. And, and every one of these green spots is a single cancer cell that sort of circulated around, got stuck, and then escaped the blood vessel. Doug and I were struck by how extensively cancers can divide and migrate within as little as two days' time. We wondered how it is that they're able to do so, as well as how John and his team went about inhibiting a single gene within each embryo in order to test the effect of that gene on metastasis. So cells naturally use a variety of mechanisms to both migrate and invade into tissues. So typically cells are polarized and, and sort of one's the business end that's reaching out and the, the back end is sort of letting go from the cells around it. So the front end is creating these finger-like protrusions and, and they're, depending on what they're made up of, they can be called philopodia, they can be called uh, lamellopodia. And if these structures happen to have enzymes at their tips that break down anything they touch and sort of create a hole for them to, to move, then they're called invadopodia. And so the cell is basically sticking out all these arms ahead of it, sort of searching the surrounding area, looking for a permissive place to sort of migrate through. And in some cases, we'll be sticking out these invadopodia that will actually break a hole through the, whatever's in front of them. And then the cell will slowly slither its way through that hole and get out. And so going back to sort of that Christmas tree thing, so when we, when we inject all these single cells and say five to 6,000 of them get stuck in this choreoantoic membrane, so over a few days, those will divide. And depending on how sort of invasive and, and migratory they are, they'll either spread out, or if they're not migrating, they'll just stick in one place and create sort of a, a, a dense spot. So what we decided to do is, is use a library of constructs, of tools, genetic tools, to allow us to inhibit every single gene of the genome. And we mixed them with a, a cells such that each individual cell would have a single gene that was affected. And so you can imagine you have 5,000 cells in, in each one of these uh, embryos. Each one has a single gene that's been knocked down or, or inhibited. And then we're asking the question, what is the effect of that gene on that individual cell as it divides? Does it affect its ability to, to spread out? And if it does, it's really obvious. So those cells that divide and, and are, are inhibited from invading and migrating produce a very compact, really bright spot. 
And so we basically surveyed the membranes of all these animals and picked out all the bright compact spots. Just because the genes work to halt the spread of cancers in animal models doesn't necessarily mean that they're equally relevant to humans as well. So we asked John how he and his team went about identifying which of the genes that they investigated might be most likely to be associated with cancers in humans. So obviously we're doing this in a semi-artificial system. We're testing it in human cells, screening it in a chick embryo, but validating in mice. So there is a little bit of human in there, but it's a little bit removed from the human condition. So one thing we did to try to get at you know, how physiologically relevant are each of these targets. So we looked at human cancers, particularly those cancers where we had information from both the primary tumor and a metastatic tumor in that same patient and asked the question, are these targets upregulated in the metastasis? And we found significant associations between several of the targets and, and different cancers. So KIF3B in, in prostate cancer, for instance, and NR2F1 was, was more prevalent in ovarian cancer. So we think probably the different targets will have cancers where they're particularly relevant. The best way to do that is, is experimentally try to figure it out. But because KIF3B has such a strong phenotype, we think it, it might be probably more appropriate to go after first and, uh, and should have relevance in multiple cancers. So just to give you a bit of background, KIF3B is uh, what we call a kinesin motor protein. So your, your cells basically have these transit routes called microtubules that sort of go from the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell, and they transport things along those routes. And these kinesins are actually a motor that walks along these highways and brings things to the outside of the cell and back in again. So we think KIF3B is important for trafficking or taking things to the outside of the cell that are important in, in cell migration. John and his team's methods were over 99% effective in blocking the metastasis of cancers. We were curious to learn what methods he and his team used to quantify this. I've got a great story about that 99% as well, but I'll, I'll tell you the, the broad strokes first. So the premise of the study was that if we really wanted to learn about how to block metastasis, we really had to do it in a living system because the way cells behave in a dish, you know, on plastic or glass when they grow typically in a lab, can be completely different from how they behave in a, in a complex three-dimensional system. And of course, in a dish, you can't replicate the fact that there are maybe 20 to 30 to 40 cell types all sort of intermingling together in a tissue. And so the goal for this study was to use a, a as complex system as we could, in this case, this ex ovo chicken embryo, to model cancer cell metastasis in a way that, you know, if we screened and discovered these new targets, they, we had a good chance that they would, they would have a significant effect on metastasis. And we used two different methods to determine that. So one of those was using fluorescent imaging of the lungs. So we basically took the whole lung, put it under a wide field fluorescence microscope and looked for those green cells that had spread. And by visually by eye, there was a significant difference between if you had those gene targets in there or if you had the control. So it was night and day. But the second method we used was this really sensitive genetic method called PCR. And PCR is a, it's, it's an amplification reaction that amplifies really rare pieces of DNA. It can pick up you know, as, as few as 10 cells and, uh, and tell you very precisely how many cells are in each organ. So the idea here was to amplify the human DNA out of the chicken, all the chicken tissue in the background. And it's sort of as a little technical detail of PCR, Basically, PCR uses a fluorescent uh, chemical that's in the reaction, and as soon as that fluorescent chemical sort of st starts to increase in your reaction, you basically say, okay, that's positive. 
We followed up by asking John to share the eureka moment when he realized that the 11 genes he and his team identified could block over 99% of metastasis among cancer cells. We'll hear from him about this revelation after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to parsing science. Before the break, John was about to describe when he realized that the methods he and his team developed could block over 99% of metastatic cancer cells. So I was looking at the raw data and plotting it out, and you know there was a significant difference, but it looked like it was only about a 20% to 30% reduction in, in metastasis. So, so we, were, we were excited, but we weren't sort of super enthused. And then one day I'm, I'm looking at the data in lab meeting, and I realized that we're actually not plotting the number of cells that have metastasized, but the number of cycles in the PCR machine that it needed to basically get to that threshold. But you can imagine this is an exponential reaction. So every time you go through a cycle, you're ex- exponentially increasing the number of copies of the you know whatever cell. So so what in fact looked like a twofold increase or a threefold increase was actually you know a thousandfold increase. So when we went back and ran the numbers, it was just like, oh my god, every single one inhibits over ninety nine percent. And so that completely changed the temperature of the lab and, and, uh, and our enthusiasm about getting the information out there. <laughs> so I'm glad we, I'm glad we reanalyzed it. I'm, you know, I'm glad we finally discovered it because for us, this is, this is you know, unprecedented. So now we have you know, 11 genes identified using a similar method. Five of them we've characterized to pretty serious detail. And we tested the same cells in this model as we did in the screen. So, so we know, obviously, that's the best case scenario is 99.5% reduction. Uh, but we tested in some other cell lines, and we got over 80% reduction in metastasis in those. So I think you know, these are sort of 11 shots on goal uh, to be able to develop drugs that should block metastasis. And so you know, I conceive of a potentially of a future where we identify sort of aggressive cancers and, and give a prophylactic treatment to prevent any spread or any further spread. But I think what's really interesting, though, is the study of metastatic cancers that have already spread. So there's sort of a thought out there that once the cat's out of the bag, you know, what is an anti-metastatic drug going to do? And there's some really, really neat studies out from a number of different labs showing this. But typically, though, what happens is that once sort of the initial metastasis forms, say it's a single metastasis, those metastatic cells in the metastasis continue to evolve and actually seed other parts of the body. So the spread during metastasis can happen both into a metastatic site, back from the metastasis into the primary tumor, and then from that metastasis to other sites in the body. So it's a very dynamic process. And, and if, you can, if you think of it that way, uh, blocking the spread at any time should have a significant effect on survival. Given the potential of the methods that John and his team identified, we were eager to learn how long it might be until we can expect human trials to take place, as well as what that process will entail. I'll say that, you know, it'll probably take longer than we would like, but there's some really positive aspects of sort of the list of genes that we've come up with. So there's a variety of different genes. A couple of them are enzymes, and enzymes have an enzymatic activity that can be blocked by sort of well-known drugs. A couple of the targets have had 
drugs or small molecules developed against them already. So we have a place to start in developing a drug that could be used in humans. So that's really promising. A couple of the pro uh, proteins we identified are cell surface proteins. And cell surface proteins can be relatively easily addressed using an, a therapeutic antibody. And therapeutic antibodies are used in the clinic all the time for many different diseases and sort of the, the development and creation of drugs around antibodies is, is relatively straightforward. Uh, and then there's a couple of proteins in there that we, we don't really have a good idea of how we might target. But potentially, because there are no currently developed drugs or any, any clear way of developing drugs, the one way we could do it is basically the same way as we did in the study. We used a genetic approach called RNA inhibition. And so that RNA inhibition in our mouse model decreased metastasis by over 99%. So we know, you know, in the real world, a drug using the same approach may not be as effective, but we know it possibly could be effective. So one of the things we're going to work on is developing an, an RNA inhibition type of drug to accomplish the same thing. Uh, now, as far as time, I mean, sort of the cost and the, the time to do clinical development is is a bit daunting, but I think... Now that we have the targets and, and we're, we're comfortable about moving forward with sort of the, the top two or three, and actually if we adopt an, an RNAi approach, I think potentially we could be in the clinic within three to four years. And of course, that would be the, the very first phase of clinical development. So it's a phased program of clinical development and approval. So phase one, uh, a study, which we might start in three to five years, would be a, just a safety study. And then followed by phase two, which is looking more at the activity and efficacy. Uh, and then phase three typically compares it directly to whatever is used at the current standard of care to see if it's better. So typically that can, you know, the whole thing from beginning to end might take a minimum of eight years and a maximum of up to 15 years. So, so we're looking at a few years ahead, but I think we've got a, a pretty good basis from which to start that. Lastly, Ryan and I were interested in hearing John's thoughts on the promise of developing genetic therapies that could halt the progression of cancers, whether it's through the use of CRISPR for gene editing or some other method. We've spent many years in research sort of trying to figure out what is. So what is the sequence of our genome? What does it mean? What are all the proteins in the body? What are all the metabolites circulating through the body? But our ability to sort of intervene and make changes to something that, you know, obviously the body is extremely complicated, but exquisitely programmed. So once we decode that programming, the question then becomes, what are the tools we can use to basically perturb that programming in a way that would, would help health? So, so I think technologies like CRISPR and, and other genetic technologies are potentially very exciting, but we're still in the very early days of CRISPR. So despite all the excitement and the hype, we're not going to have a successful CRISPR drug in the next couple of years. It's going to it's going to take you know several years to get to the point where we can reliably and safely edit genes. But that day is coming. So I'm really both excited and terrified by genetic technologies that could use a something like CRISPR to propagate changes to the entire body. These have already been demonstrated, so so we know they're possible. And uh, and I think they're they're really going to transform medicine. So once we can specifically edit any gene we want in a, in a safe and re reproducible way, and, and most importantly, propagate that change throughout the body, I think uh, we're going to be in a completely new era. That was John Lewis discussing the article, Quantitative in Vivo Whole Genome Motility Screen Reveals Novel Therapeutic Targets to Block Cancer Metastasis, which he published with Konstantin Stolotov and 13 other researchers on June 14, 2018, in the journal Nature Communications. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org e33, along with bonus content and other material discussed during the episode. 
Since we launched it in August, Parsing Science's weekly newsletter on the latest developments in science continues to gain new subscribers every day. You can sign up at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or if you would like to check out our first seven issues, go to parsingscience.org newsarchive. That's one word, newsarchive. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll continue to explore the latest research into cancers with Mike Fagan from Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory in New York. He'll talk with us about his discovery of mutations in part of the genome that most people have so far tended to ignore, but which regulate the expression of genes that drive the formation of cancer tumors in the pancreas. We think that these mutations are causing a decrease in gene expression, and we know from the uh, SHRNA studies that a decrease in expression of, of these genes is you know, really important for the ability of these cells to grow. And so we think that's how this process is working, is that the decrease in gene expression of these genes is critically important for growth of the cells. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>